today we're going to continue on in our uh, series through the book or through the Sermon on the Mount. And, you know, believe it or not, we're actually over halfway through this series. We're, we're well over halfway through the series, uh, which I think seems crazy. It seems like it's gone really fast, but maybe that's just the way that life has been going in general these days. But, uh, you know, as pastors, we really hope and pray that this series has been a, uh, beneficial for you. Uh, I know for me, I've personally enjoyed it. I've really benefited from digging in and studying these wonderful words of Jesus. Um, and I think one of the big takeaways, at least one of the themes I feel like that's been coming up over and over again, and, and again, perhaps it's just me, something the Lord's doing in my heart, uh, is that I feel like as we've been going through this series, we see Jesus over and over again appealing to his followers to trust and to believe in the goodness of the Father. You see, I think Jesus wants you and he wants me to know and to believe that our Heavenly Father sees us, he knows us, and he is good. You see, Jesus wants us to know and understand that our Father's commands are designed in such a way as to protect our joy, not to take our joy away. You see, our Father is not a killjoy, but rather he's the author of joy. Our Father's not out to take from us, but rather he's out to give to reward, to bless. In fact, last week, Pastor Chris walked us through the section on the Sermon on the Mount that deals with prayer. And one of the foundational principles we saw is that prayer is relational. You see, you and I, we have been invited and even commanded by Jesus to approach God as our Father. And that's amazing. And we didn't talk about it much last week, but one of the verses we read was Matthew 7, 11, which says this. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? And I just love this verse. I've been thinking about it a lot the last year or two. And I just love that thought, even that phrase of how much more. You see, we serve a good and a gracious and a how much more kind of a Father. All we have to do is to believe that those things are true of Him. But the problem is, is that's hard for many of us to do. And it's perhaps hard for a variety of reasons. Perhaps it has to do with our own, our, our own earthly fathers. But I think one of the main reasons it's hard for us is because we have allowed idols into our lives. We've allowed these other things into our lives which have begun to cloud our view of the Father. It's caused us to lose sight of His goodness. You see, we've run to other things. We've, we've allowed, we've made other things into gods. And yet because they are not God, they cannot hold up to that weight and they do not satisfy. But because our Father is good, because He is gracious, because He loves you and He loves me, He will not allow us to run to our idols without exposing them for what they really are. So that's what we want to look at today in our passage. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 6. And won't you stand? We're going to read verses 19 through 34. If you want to use a pew Bible, that's page 811. So Matthew 6, 19 through 34. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. 
If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about the body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble." Let's pray. Father, thank you for these precious words here. And Father, I just ask that you would give me and my friends eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to know your word this morning. Father, we just pray that you would come in your spirit and power and in truth. And Lord, that none of us would leave here today uh, the same as when we walked in, but that we would all be a little closer to looking like Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. Okay, so to guide our time this morning, I want to ask and attempt to answer three questions in relation to today's passage. And those are, number one, what is Jesus going after? Number two, why is he going after it? And then finally, number three, how do we move forward? And so starting with number one, what is Jesus going after? Or in other words, what is Jesus exposing here? Well, I alluded to it in the introduction, and and what I think Jesus is doing here is he's exposing in this passage our our, our idols and our idolatry. And maybe you're sitting here wondering, what in the world are you talking about when you say our idols or idolatry? Like, are you talking about like some miniature statue that we put over the fireplace or like the golden calf in the Old Testament? Is it something like that? Well, yes, those are idols. Those are false gods. but, But idols are more than that. And in our day and age, they are perhaps more subtle, they are perhaps not as archaic, but they are no less prevalent or damaging. And so in case you still have no idea what I'm talking about here, uh, let me define what an idol is. And there's been a lot written on this in Christianity over the last 10 years or so, but I really like how uh, Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, defines it. He writes this, an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. 
And so what we see here is that idolatry is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of who and what we worship, what we give our affections and our allegiance to. And we saw Jesus earlier in, uh, Matthew, or earlier in chapter 6 go after the religious leaders' idolatry. He did it by exposing how they were uh, practicing their righteousness in front of others in order to gain approval, in order to have others stand up and applaud them for their righteousness. In other words, these religious leaders had made getting man's approval ultimate in their lives. And so that's why they prayed the way that they did. That's why they would stand on the street corners. That's why when they gave money, they would sound trumpets so that people would notice them. And so in other words, they were out to get man's approval and get that affirmation. And it had become a God to them. It had become an idol. And that was the passage uh, Nick walked us through a couple weeks ago where Jesus exposed them for their hypocrisy, but ultimately he was exposing them for their idolatry. But starting now in verse 19, we see Jesus move away from, you could say, uh, our religious or our devotional lives and exposing the idols there. So now he's moving into our kind of day in and day out or our secular lives. Not, not that there's really a divide, but, but what we do on Monday morning, perhaps. And the two main idols he goes after in these passages is, number one, the idol of money and materialism, which we see uh, in verses 19 through 24. And then the second idol we see him go after is uh, the idol of worry and control. And we see that in verses 25 through 34. And trust me, it's going to get a little uncomfortable today because he's going after our wallets and our storage units and also our worries and our fears. And so it might get a little personal, a little touchy, but just hang with me here, because as I said in the beginning, the Lord, he, his commands for us are not out to steal our joy, but rather to enhance them. And so now that we've answered what Jesus is going after in these passages, let's move on to that second question. And that is this. Why does he go after them? Well, look back down at verse 19. It says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so Jesus, he just jumps right in. He goes right after this idol of materialism. And he says, look, do you see how dumb and how foolish it is to lay up treasures on earth? Or in other words, how dumb it is to accumulate material possessions for yourself. And he's like, why would you spend all of this time and energy and resources accumulating possessions that can either be destroyed or stolen from you? Like, how silly is it to put all of your hope, to put all of your faith in things and uh, these material goods that can be taken away from you? And maybe you're thinking to yourself this morning, well, you know, Nick, we don't have to worry about that stuff anymore because we have mothballs and security systems to keep our stuff safe. And I just have a question for you. Have you ever smelled a mothball? <laughs> because I don't know about you, but I would rather have holes in my clothes than to, have, than to smell like a mothball. And, you know, I, I actually looked up this week because I'm like, what in the world are those things anyway? And, and so I looked it up. And do you realize mothballs are little balls that are of, of chemical pesticide? And so some of us in this room are so desperate to keep clothes we don't wear anymore that we are actually willing to soak them in chemical pesticide. And, you know, next week, Pastor Mike's going to be talking on the section about judging others. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I'm not trying to do that. But to me, putting chemical pesticide on your clothes sounds a little crazy. And not only that, I was thinking about it this week. And, and you could 
this isn't a hundred percent true, but I would say a lot of the things that we buy, um, I would say a lot of the things we buy nowadays are just five to ten years away from being in a garbage dump or at best a thrift store. Or for you hoarders out there in your garage or your basements, you know. (laughs) And I don't know about you, but I find that to be very frustrating. Like, I find it to be very frustrating that our clothes nowadays, our furniture is made out of such cheap material that it just doesn't really last. Or if it does last, fashion changes so often that we wouldn't even really want it anyway. Um, But not only that, our technology stuff, you know, those things that we all are obsessed with, those things don't last either. They either, uh, again, they stop working after two years, right? Out of the cell phone companies have something going on there. You're like, come on, really? Two years? This is crazy. But um, it's, it's either they stop working or, again, technology is just moving. You know, for those of you who invested your life savings in the VHS collection that you finally got complete and then, you know, whoa. DVDs came out, and now it's happening again, and now we're moving to digital stuff. And, and so it's, it's, it's crazy. Um, I mean, does anyone else besides me have old computers and cell phones sitting around your house? Because it's so painful to think of throwing them away because of how much they cost, or because you have so many pictures on them that you don't want to lose that you're like, i, I got to find a way to get those pictures off, you know? And it's ridiculous. It's a little bit like how comedian Jim Gaffigan talks about it. He says, you know, one day we're all going to have closets full of old computers, and we're going to say, oh, you know, there's my Disney World trip computer. And, you know, here, oh, here's my wedding picture computer. I, I love that one, you know. And, and it's just crazy. And according to Jesus, it's a bad investment. It's a bad use of our time and our resources. And so he's like, look, guys, don't store up treasures on earth where people can steal them or where things can ruin them. But rather, store up treasures in heaven where neither one of those things can happen. In other words, Jesus is appealing to us here to spend our time, our energy, and our resources on things that will last for eternity, on things that will impact people's lives for the kingdom. And not only that, but look at this very revealing and painful statement in verse 21. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Ouch, That, that one hurts a little bit, that stings. You see, this is why it is idolatry, because it has our affections. It has our hearts. You see, idols, they always go after our affections and they reveal what we truly love and what we truly value. And, you know, we can try to argue against Jesus's words here and say, no, no, my heart is not wrapped up in my money or my possessions. But I think deep down, we all know that what Jesus says here is true. He he continues on in verse 22. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And so here Jesus uh, uh, transitions a little bit. He starts using this analogy of our eyes in relation to how we let light in, or in relation to how we let light in. And basically what he's getting at is that we have two choices. We can either walk in darkness or we can walk in light. And one thing that's very interesting to note here in this passage is that the Greek word, when it says healthy, when it talks about the healthy eye, it actually has a double meaning. And the other meaning is that healthy is generous. At the same time, the Greek word for bad, when it talks about a bad eye, uh, the double meaning there is the word stingy. 
And so in this context of Jesus talking about money and materialism, I think it's obvious that he wants us to understand that he is making the point about how dangerous this type of idolatry is. And as some have pointed out, when you look at verse 23, it says, If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. That Jesus is showing us how deceptive and dangerous greed is. In other words, greed has this kind of blinding effect to it. And what I mean is, is that in terms of it being blinding, is that no one thinks that they're greedy. I mean, I've been in a lot of life groups throughout the years. I've led a lot of life groups. I've been in men's accountability groups. And I've never once heard someone confess and repent of the sin of greed. Like, no one has ever walked into life group and been like, man, guys, I, I really blew it this week. I was greedy with my money and my possessions. And, you know, I just felt like I needed to confess that for you and ask you guys to hold me accountable. As far as I know, that has never once happened in the history of life groups. Or have you ever heard of someone getting uh, kicked out of church for being greedy? Or had church discipline enacted on them? I, I have, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure, actually, I heard one story back in like 1635, it, it happened. But I'm not joking, this, this guy got kicked out of the church for, uh, he had increased uh, his interest rate from 4% to 6%. And uh, they had agreed that 4% was okay, but that 6 was too much. And, and he broke that, and so they, they disciplined him. And, but apart from that, I've never once heard a story of someone getting church discipline for greed. And I think the reason that this is, is because we, uh, we can always find someone more greedier than ourselves. I think we've made greed so subjective that basically none of us feel guilty about it. You see, when it comes to something like idolatry, it's a pretty black and white line. It's never like, oh, well, I don't, I don't know, maybe. But, but here, with greed, it's a little bit harder. I think for most of us, we think, oh, gee, I don't, I don't even have enough money to be greedy. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Only rich people are greedy, Right? Well, actually, that's false. That's, that's actually not true. In the same way that being generous has nothing to do with a dollar amount, but rather by how much it costs you, by how much sacrifice is involved. In the same way, being greedy isn't a dollar amount, but rather it's a position of the heart. It's a matter of who or what is your God. In other words, guys, there are greedy rich people like Ebenezer Scrooge, but there are also greedy poor people and greedy middle class people. It's a matter of the heart. Now look back down at verse 24. He says this. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now the word money there uh, at the end of the verse uh, also includes our possessions. Uh, the Greek word there is actually mammon, which encompasses both. And what Jesus is saying is this, look, money and possessions are idols. They are false gods. And you can either love, serve, and trust them, or you can love, serve, and trust God. But you cannot do both at the same time. To serve one is to reject the other, and to love one is to despise or to hate the other. And for many of us, I think we read this verse and we don't like it. We, we actually hate it. We don't want to believe that this is true. We, we want to believe that there's a way to serve both, to love both, but there's not. And on this point, I really like what John Stott wrote in his Sermon on the Mount commentary. He said this. So anybody who divides his allegiance between God and mammon has already given it to mammon. Since God can be served only with an entire and an exclusive devotion... 
This is simply because he is God. To try to share him with other loyalties is to have, ado- is to have opted for idolatry. And so this is why Jesus goes after and exposes this idol of money and materialism here. But he's not done. He moves on to another one that is somewhat connected. And so let's move on to that next uh, set of verses in verse 25. He says this, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about the body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Okay, so Jesus has just exposed the idol of money and materialism and how we can't serve both, uh, both those things and God at the same time, but rather we have to choose. And so now here in verse 25, he shifts and he says, okay, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. And it's as if he realizes and even anticipates that for many of us to be told that we can't serve God and money, that that, that thought, that idea that we have to serve and trust God alone and depend on him alone, that that is a terrifying and anxious-filled thought. And so Jesus is like, look, while I'm here, let me go ahead and expose another idol, and that is control, worry and control. You see, the reason that I think we worry and have anxiety is because we have given ourselves over to the idol of control. Um, theologians have pointed out that and, and have argued that there are essentially four main idols that we all fall into. And these are what they call deep or source idols. You see, because there are all kinds of surface idols, things like money and materialism, or we can even turn family into an idol or fame. All of those things are surface idols. But really, when you dig in and look what's uh, behind them or what's under them, you actually discover a deeper Uh, a a deeper, more significant idol. And the four main idols that they have argued are uh, comfort, approval, power, and control. So comfort, approval, power, and control. Let me try to illustrate this. You see, you and I can, uh, I, I said earlier that money is a surface idol. And the reason that it is, is because you and I can want money for different reasons. You may want money and material possessions because of how it makes others think of you. And therefore, it, it gives you this kind of approval. And, and so, you know, you, you, your motivation for buying a certain car or house is, is because of how others will think of you. Whereas maybe I want money because I, it allows me to control my life and control those around me. It gives me this feeling of safety and security. Now, look, we're both worshiping the idol of money, but we are doing so for deeper more complex reasons for a deeper or more complex idol in our life. And so again, Jesus here in this second passage is going a step deeper to expose and to confront the idol of control. And the, and the reason he confronts it and exposes it is because, number one, it doesn't work. It doesn't satisfy. It cannot deliver on what it has promised. But the second reason he exposes and confronts it is because it paints a false picture of our Heavenly Father. Look back down at verse 27. He says, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? You see what Jesus is saying there. He's saying, look, the whole reason you worry is because you are trying to control your life. You are seeking after safety and security, and yet you can't even add a single hour to your life. In fact, in Luke's gospel, when Jesus says this, uh, we, we see this added phrase at the end, which is so uh, amazing. In Luke twelve twenty six, he says, if then you are unable to do a small thing as that, 
Why are you anxious about the rest? And I just love that. Jesus is like, look, you can't even add a single hour to your life. And that's so simple and easy. Uh, Like I do that in my sleep. And yeah, you guys can't do that. So guys, don't even worry. You don't need to worry about things. And I really like how this one pastor uh, described it. He said this. He said, we seek control. In other words, we seek to control our environment. And we discover that we can't. So we worry. Which then forces us to try to control it all the more. Which only helps us see we can't control it. Which leads to greater worry. Which makes us try to control it even more. Which lets us down. Which leads us to worry. Which then makes us want to control it even more. And we get stuck in this cycle where anxiety and worry and fear devours us. So we clamp down even tighter. Only creating more anxiety and fear and worry. Do you see how damaging this idol is? It's just this vicious cycle that keeps you in a state of panic. And for many of you, it's ruining your mental and your physical health. There's all kinds of research that shows how damaging anxiety is on your physical body. And not only that, not only is it ruining your body and your mind, but it's probably ruining your personal relationships too. You see, when we are out to control ourselves and other people around us, there are devastating consequences on those who are involved. And so again, Jesus exposes it because it doesn't work and because it's damaging. But not only that, if we look back down at the passage, we see he exposes it because again, it distorts who our heavenly father is. And so look back down. Let's read verses 25 uh, through 32. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. And so here we see Jesus begin to correct our distorted view of the father by drawing our attention to nature. And he's like, look, why are you so worried and anxious about what you will eat or about what you're going to wear? Have you not watched the birds before? I mean, look at these guys. They don't have tractors and combines and barns and refrigerators. And yet your father makes sure uh, he feeds them. Don't you realize you are more valuable than the birds? And then if that were not proof enough, he moves on to talk about flowers. And he's like, look, are you seriously worried about clothes? Are you seriously worried about whether or not you're going to have something to put on? Have you ever looked at a lily before? Have you ever looked at the flowers? I mean, come on, guys, even King Solomon in all of his wealth and effort, he was not dressed like one of them. And yet these things are alive one day and the next day they're thrown into the oven. And yet you don't think that your father can clothe you? And Jesus is like, come on, guys, where is your faith? Because I can tell it's not in the father, because if you truly knew and believed in the goodness of the father, this wouldn't even be 
a question. You see, I mentioned in the introduction that I think one of the main uh, objectives of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and really one of the main objectives of his life, is to show us just how good and how loving our Heavenly Father is. You see, I think because Jesus is, uh, because he loves us and is committed to making sure we have a right picture of who the Father is, he constantly and consistently exposes and pushes on our idols in order to show them for what they really are. And so if your idol is comfort, you can be sure the Lord is going to bring some discomfort into your life. If your idol is approval, you can be sure that for whatever reason, the Lord's just going to allow some people into your life who just simply don't like you. And it's going to kill you. You're going to hate it. You're going to be, why don't they like me? I want them to like me, but they won't. If like me, your idol is control, you can be sure that the Lord is going to put you in some situations where you realize you have no control. And again, we can't get this wrong. It's not because he doesn't love us, but it's precisely because he does love us that he allows these things to happen. Because he knows that only when we look to the Father can we have our deepest needs met. And that only in him can we find what we are truly looking for. You know, I just said and admitted to you that uh, I think control is an issue in my life. And it probably is the source idol that I am tempted by the most, although comfort is right up there too. And, and oftentimes they go hand in hand with me. But I just uh, mentioned that at times Jesus will uh, push on these idols or, or allow them to try to bear up under that weight and, and, and in order to expose their powerlessness and to expose the true bankruptcy of us trusting and following them. And, you know, I've talked about this a number of times here, and so I won't go into a lot of detail or expound on it. But, but about seven years ago, when the Lord uh, allowed me to go through a season of depression, and, and it was the first time I'd ever experienced that. And along with that depression, there was some anxiety and insomnia that, that, that came with it as well. And it was really through that season that the Lord allowed, uh, he exposed this idol of, com- of control in my life. You see, up until that point, I had felt pretty control of my life. Sure, Jesus had saved me and, and you know, changed my life in some major ways. But, but there was still this reality where I felt like I was the one calling the shots. And yet through that season, I was constantly and painfully reminded of just how little control I had over my life and even how little control I had over my own mental health, which was extremely scary. When you feel like you're going crazy and you're trying to control that, that is a really scary place to be. And it was hard. But I learned some lessons through that season on how to trust the father that I wouldn't trade for anything. You see, those sleepless nights, those anxious thoughts eventually led me to press into God and to trust him in ways that I couldn't have imagined before that. And I know that I haven't arrived yet and that I'm still uh, very much tempted to worry and to try to control uh, the things in my life. And so I'm sure the Lord in his grace is going to continue to expose and to teach me just how to trust him and how to help me understand that I That Nick Carruthers is a child of God and therefore I have all that I need in him. You see, in verse 32, Jesus draws this distinction and he says, don't worry about food and clothes because that's what the Gentiles or that's what unbelievers do. He's like, look, you don't need to act like them because your father knows that you need all of these things. And the same way that it would be really weird for my six-year-old son to obsessively worry about whether or not his mom and I were going to feed him, 
Jesus is like, that would, what are you doing? You have a father. Your father knows that you need these things. He's going to take care of you. Trust him, just like a little child. Just like, you know, when our four kids wake up, they, they know they're going to get food. It's just a matter of when and what it's going to be, you know. What, Cheerios today or is it something else, you know. They eat more than Cheerios, just to clarify. But oftentimes, that, that's usually the go-to in the morning. Um, our life's crazy. We have little twins and it gets crazy. But um, so now that we've talked about why Jesus goes after these idols, he goes after them because uh, they don't work. And because they destroy who the Father is, let's move on and answer that last question, and that is this. How do we move forward? I think the first thing that we have to do is to take some time to examine our own lives and hearts and see if any of these idols exist there. And so the first place to start is just to very simply and honestly examine your actions. I mean, look at your bank account. Look at how you have spent your money recently. Has it been exclusively on yourself Or have you used it to bless others or to build the kingdom? In other words, if someone looked at your bank account, is there any indication that you care about the kingdom of God? What about your house? Look around. Are you amassing material possessions? Do you have a bunch of stuff you don't need or use anymore? In other words, are you laying up or, you know, are there cases of uh, mothballs and WD-40 laying around your house? I'm not saying you have a problem, but... But maybe you do, okay? Let's take an honest, hard look. Have you and have I made money and things our treasure? Is that where our heart is? What about worry and control? Do you take control of every moment and situation in your life? Are you, are you crushing those around you because you're just, that the idol of control has such a grip on you that you're constantly trying to manipulate things and, and hold on to things? Do you live by the mantra, if I want it done right, I have to do it myself? Or can you let others help you without micromanaging them? What about your thought life? Examine them. You know, when you're standing in the kitchen washing dishes or, or when you're driving in a car with the radio off, where does your mind wander to automatically? In those quiet moments before bed, where does your mind go? Do you constantly think about money? Either by how much you have or conversely, how little you have? Or are you always thinking of ways you can make more? Or do you daydream about what it would be like if you won the lottery and you just think, oh, if I just won the lottery, I'd buy this and I would do that. And is that where your mind goes? What about your emotions? Do anxiety and fear, do anxiety and fear describe your emotions? Or are they marked by faith and the peace and the joy that comes with that? See, when we look at the Ten Commandments, the first one tells us that we're to have no other gods before him. And yet when we allow idols into our lives, that is exactly what we are doing. And so what are we to do? We'll look back down at verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. So here Jesus is calling us to forsake our idols and to realign our hearts and our priorities back to the king. To get our eyes off of ourselves and our stuff and the things going on and get our eyes back on King Jesus. To get our eyes back on the kingdom. And he promises that when we do this, all of these things that we're tempted to be worried about. All of these things that we're tempted to store up. When we get our eyes back on the king and we get our priorities straight, straight, they will be given to us as well. 
And so in closing, let me just finish by uh, giving us a few application points here. Number one, if when we went through this today, you realize that money and material possessions have a hold on your life in an idolatrous way, I want you this week to ask yourself two questions. Number one, what would it look like for me to sacrificially be generous this next week? And, and that word sacrifice is really important because for many of us, we can be quote unquote generous by, because of an amount of money, but really it doesn't actually cost us anything. And so for all of us, what would it look like for me to be sacrificially generous this next week? And then secondly, in a more long-term way, what steps could I take to simplify my life in order to use my resources to seek first the kingdom of God? To use my resources to build the kingdom of God. What if about when we went through this today, you thought, you know, I think this, this idea of, of, of worry and control, it, it has a hold on me. Well, my application for you then is, number one, to spend some time expressing gratitude to the Lord. See, the reason for that is because I think, by and large, gratitude kills anxiety. You see, when we're anxious, what's going on there is we're primarily inward focused. And not only that, we're, we're, what's going on is we're afraid that God won't come through for us. And yet when we take time to express gratitude and think, thanksgiving, we get our eyes off of ourselves. And it also forces us to remember and to acknowledge all of the ways, all of the times that God has come through for us. You see, gratitude reminds us of his faithfulness. And so if you really struggle with anxiety and worry, or if, if something pops up this week and you begin to go down that path, just stop right there and just say, oh, no, I, I did this this week. I was, I, I'm not very handy with working on our house. It's, it drives me nuts. Like my dad was a maintenance man. My brother's an electrician. Like I feel like I should have that DNA. And yet I just don't. And it's very sad. But, um, and so when I look around our house, I can get a little anxious. I can get worried because I, I feel like it's falling apart. You know, I think, oh, well, man, there's a problem there. And I, I don't have the skills to fix it. And, and so I can begin to worry. And so the, earlier this week, I'd walk down in, into our basement and I was worrying about something in our house. And I just stopped and I just looked and I actually I just finished mopping our house. And I was like, Lord, thank you that our house is small, that it doesn't take that long to mop. And so that thought popped in my head. And I was like, yeah, that's a different perspective, right? I'm like, thank you. Our house is small. And then I looked over and I saw this deep freezer. I'm like, Lord, thank you for that deep freezer. And I remembered how we were able to get it on this like huge sale because it was like a display model and all of this. I'm like, Lord, thank you for the food that's in that refrigerator in that freezer. And I just began to go look at all, I just looked around at our house and I just was overwhelmed with thankfulness and gratitude. And it killed the anxiety. It killed the worry. And so if that's you, I want to challenge you to do that this week. We see that in Philippians. It says, be anxious for nothing, but by, with everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And, and the peace of God, which passes understanding, is going to guard your hearts and minds. And so do that this week. Oops, sorry. Not only that, the, uh, again, if you struggle with worry and anxiety, the text, the application we see from today's passage is to take some time to observe nature. And this is something I've been, as well, I've been trying to do all week long. And so I've been waking up and, and grabbing my Bible and a cup of coffee and going out to our, our screened-in front porch. And, and I've just been reading the Word. And then when I'm done, I'll just sit there for an, another 10 or 15 minutes. And uh, for whatever reason, this, 
this time of year, the birds are just going nuts at our house. And, and we have these two cute uh, blue jays that are hanging out and they just have babies. And, and so I just this week was watching them swoop in and out and get food and gather. And it just encouraged my faith. I thought, Lord, this is you taking care of these birds right now. As well, my wife loves gardening, has been working really hard in our yard. And so there's all these beautiful flowers in bloom. And it's just like, Lord, you care about what that flower looks like enough. And you're so creative that, that you provide for that. Even though like three weeks from now, it's going to shrivel up and die. And we're going to cut it off and put it in our fire pit. But, but Lord, you care enough that you're going to do that. And so you, you care about me. You say, how much more do I care about you? And so walk around your house or go to a park. Put your phones down, you know. Maybe go to Ennis Woods. We did that this week. That place is amazing. And right now it's just everything's in bloom and it's beautiful. And so some of us need to do that this week. Uh, Band, you can go ahead and come up. I just have one final thought here. For all of us, I want to challenge us to memorize and to meditate on this very little verse in Romans 8, 32, uh, which says this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? As I started preparing for this message this week, that verse popped immediately into my mind. And, and, and you know, this, this thought that, that the father provided for our biggest need. Our biggest need was to be uh, forgiven, to be reconciled back to the father. And, and, and he did that by giving us his son. He met our biggest need uh, by uh, giving us the thing that cost him the most. And so if he did that, Paul says here, we can be confident. We can have assurance that he's going to give us all things as well. He's going to graciously give us all things. And so take some time this week to, to memorize. It's a very short verse and to meditate on it. And I believe that when you do, you're going to be blessed. Uh, to close, I just want to read a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. And in it, he, he right now is thinking about Romans 8.32 and also this section on the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what he writes. Jesus does not tell us what we ought to do, but cannot. He tells us what God has given us and promises still to give. If Christ has been given to us, if we are called to his discipleship, we are given all things. Literally all things. He will see to it that they are added unto us. If we follow Jesus and look only to his righteousness, we are in his hands and under the protection of him and his father. And if we are in communion with the father, nothing can harm us. After he has been following Christ for a long time, the disciple of Jesus will be asked, lacked ye anything? And the disciple will answer, nothing, Lord. For how could he when he knows that despite hunger and nakedness, persecution and danger, the Lord is always at his side. This is our father, guys. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for repainting who the father is to us. Thank you, Lord, that he cares so much about his creation. He cares enough that he provides the birds and the flowers. But thank you, Father, that it says, how much more does he care about us? And so, Lord, I just pray that that truth would sink deep down into my heart this morning, that it would sink deep down into my friends' hearts. 
Lord, for anyone here who's just struggling to put their identity and their hope in money or material possessions, Lord, I just pray you would reveal the bankruptcy of that. Lord, for anyone here who's just struggling with worry and anxiety and fear, Father, would you lift that cloud this morning? Father, would you breathe in hope and life and peace into their hearts? Lord, for all of us, would you help us just to walk away here just more confident and who you are and, and what you have done for us and what you will continue to do. Lord, we know that when we stand before you, like Bonhoeffer said, if we're asked if we lacked anything, we will say nothing, Lord, because you are enough. And according to your word, we have you. And so I pray that you would just help us to see that clearly this morning. And we pray all of this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.